Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Scenes by Just Baseball Media. As always, I'm Jared Perkins. That's PJ Conlon. Uh, we are well into the offseason now. Uh, we've had the non-tender deadline. We've had everybody getting protected for the 40-man roster. So we're going to touch on a few of those things today. Uh, we got an incredible interview with Lenny DiNardo, who pitched for the Boston Red Sox, a lefty that PJ has a lot of uh, similarities with. So there's a good interview there that we're going to dive into um, we're actually going to break down uh, PJ's first at bat as well. Uh, PJ, how are you doing oh, today? Man. I'm doing great. Yeah, the you know the talk with Lenny was awesome. Like you mentioned, it yeah. seemed like I just saw a ton of myself in him. Just the yeah. way you know we kind of both had to pitch, not being you know overpowering kind of guys. And uh, yeah, it was just funny hearing someone else talk about it because it was always you know I felt like alone a lot of the time when I was playing because that's guys were throwing 95, no problem. I'm yeah. out here throwing 86 in games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's those few guys, and like you said, I remember we talked offline after the podcast. I mean, if you were pitching in the early 2000s, probably could have stuck around a little longer just because I know making it. I was I was just a little too early, you know. And yeah. I'll, I got no shame in saying that, you know. Maybe <laughs> it still probably might not have worked out, but I like to think in my own head that it it would have it would have gone a little better. I love it. We'll dive into that interview in a second, uh, but I want to touch on some off-season topics. Um, I guess the first thing is we had the non-tender deadline, uh, people getting added to the 40-man roster. Um, some of the things that kind of stuck out to me was, of course, Brandon Woodruff being DFA'd by the Milwaukee Brewers. They didn't want to pay him $20-plus million because uh, he's going to be out most of the year with an injury, a pretty tough shoulder injury. Um, did you ever have to go through like the, the non-tender process? Um, yeah, so in 2018, when I made up to the big leagues for a little bit, um, I was DFA'd in the middle of the season yeah. that year, too. Ended up being on the Dodgers for a couple of days, then back to the Mets. And then at the end of the season, um, I was DFA'd again. But that time, they didn't even tell me when I got DFA'd. I just found out after that was like, hey, you were DFA'd however long ago. You cleared waivers. And I didn't have enough service time or enough even minor league years to opt out. So yeah. I just got outrighted uh, to AAA. Um, yeah. But I, I saw that coming, you know, I didn't get called up for a September call up, which I was expecting. And then it didn't happen. So I was like, okay, like I'm probably going to get DFA in the off season. So it didn't come as a huge surprise. It's like one of those things that I think has to be really tough for players, right? Because we, we focus on the human side of things and thinking of a guy like Woodruff, who's just going through now this massive shoulder surgery that could potentially like impact his entire career. And then all of a sudden gets DFA by the team that drafts him. Um, what are some of the things that kind of went through your head too, when you went through that process? I mean, me personally, I was like, I was kind of bummed yeah. that 
well, obviously I was bummed that I didn't get picked up, but I was also kind of bummed that I didn't even have the option, you know, to, to become a free agent. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a guy like Woodruff with his track record and stuff, even with, you know, the big injury, he's going to find a team that, that'll, you know, take a chance on him and stuff. So I think he's going to be fine in that sense. But yeah, I mean, it's super tough because it's just like, you know, at least in, in my personal experience, it was like, okay, I worked so hard to get to the big yeah. leagues. And then you hear all these guys say, you know, it's one thing to make it, it's another thing to stay. And then getting DFA'd again in the offseason, it was like, oh man, like, am, is, am I just going to be like a cup of coffee kind of guy? And it ended up being like that, but it's okay now. But yeah, at yeah. the time, th those thoughts do start to creep into your head a little bit. Just kind of like, oh man, like I'm not seeing the same. It, I, it just going into that next spring training, it was just like totally different headspace than the spring training before. Sp going into 18, it was like, okay, I'm one of the young guys. You know, if I play well, I'll get my chance. And then going into 19, it was like, oh, did was that did I already blow like my first tryout? And then like it's going to be even harder to like get another shot like that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what was going through my head at the time. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting time of the year too, because like a lot of people think, Oh, it's only the fringe guys who are kind of on the books. But I mean, you had Brandon Woodruff who what won a Cy Young or was a finalist for a Cy Young mm -hmm. or it's like, no one's really safe when you come down to the 40 man roster and those business decisions start kind of creeping in for teams. Like uh, these guys just like, you see guys like Nick Senzel with the, the Cincinnati Reds who was like a number one overall prospect or close to a number one overall mm -hmm. prospect at one point he gets DFA because he just again battled injuries just couldn't find a way to find consistent playing time through those injuries never was the same after he had the vertigo stint and other things that happened mm -hmm. so it's just one of those weird periods that like fans get enjoy it but I think like that the player side there's a lot that's going on because one like you said there's all the mental stuff that creeps in whether you think you're good enough to stick to like you're living in a city and all of a sudden if you get dfa you go to a new team mm -hmm. um, or you get traded because you're going to get dfa um i, I gotta imagine like all those things that are hard to deal with yeah especially guys that have been around uh for a while at the big league yeah. level you know i'm sure they you know have you know pretty solid roots wherever they played for that long and even guys that you know like a senzo is a first round pick like that's all he's known and stuff yeah. you know so it's it's definitely weird like I mean, I was only with a different team. I was with the Dodgers for like five days. So it was kind of in and out. So I didn't really get the whole, <laughs> this is new. Now I yeah. feel comfortable and stuff. Um, but a, a good thing that comes out of it is, you know, these, you're going to see a lot of guys with, you know, big league time or former, like, uh, you know, big time prospect names that are going to be signing like minor league free agent deals with invitations to spring training. And, you know, next thing you know, these guys go and have a good spring and they make the team out of camp and, you know, hopefully they're, they're finally healthy for the first time in a long time. And then, you know, they either get back to where they were pre-injury and, and start, you know, playing well again, or they finally realize that potential that, you know, wherever they were at before, they weren't able to reach that kind of, you know, those uh, expectations that were put on them. Yeah, and I think the one thing you kind of touched on, too, is getting that new opportunity, right? And you see a lot of trades happen of guys who are going to be DFA by their team, but to kind of get a new opportunity with a new team. We saw a couple of trades like that happen. I think the one that sticks out to me as a Royals fan, of course, is Kyle Wright getting sent to the Kansas City Royals for Jackson mm -hmm. Coar. Coar was another uh, first-round pick by the Royals, uh, gets sent over to Kansas City. 
Wright, who has had a lot of success in the big leagues, also a first round pick of the Braves. Yep. Battled a ton of injuries, battled some mindset um, things. Uh, I think that trade really re- is a perfect example of like two guys who just maybe need a new home in order to see if they can figure some out things out. I followed Coar for a while with the Royals, and it's a guy with a 60 grade fastball, a 70 grade changeup. Like, and it's the curveball is pretty decent too. And it's just like a guy who just dominated in the minor leagues. And every time he got to the big leagues, it just seemed like he could not find his footing. And mm-hmm. it went through some of the mindset and mental things, side of the game struggles that we talk about. And maybe he can figure something out in Atlanta. So you see those trades and you're hoping like, okay, maybe this guy can really find something new over maybe in Atlanta's bullpen um, for them. Exactly. Yeah. A change of scenery can be huge, you know, especially when you're going through mental stuff. Yeah. And then obviously just also working with other people, you know, other pitching coaches, other analysts and stuff like that, that maybe see things that other people haven't seen. And then, you know, someday or just one day something clicks and it's like, why haven't I been doing this the entire time? And yeah, yeah the change of scenery can just bring something like that on and blink of an eye. Yeah. And that's why I'm excited as a Royals fan to get Kyle Wright, right? He's out mm-hmm. all this year, basically. But you have two brand new pitching coaches and Brian Sweeney um, and Zach Bove who have just completely revamped how the Royals develop pitchers. And you can see it throughout the minor leagues. They had some of the best arms start to develop. And you bring a guy like Kyle Wright and the stature that he has into a potential rotation for the Royals in 2025. I mean, that's got to be something exciting for Royals fans. So, Oh, yeah. And he's had success at the big league level. Yeah. You know, know, if when he's healthy, he's – He's a solid, solid starting guy you want in your rotation. Yeah, and it seems like a perfect guy to take a bet on, too. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of some competitive teams that are actually going to be going for it, unlike the Royals, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals really have made the biggest splash probably so far this offseason, signing yeah. Sonny Gray, Kyle Gibson, Lance Lynn, um, bringing in inning seeders. I mean, that's yeah. what they did with last year. They didn't have guys who could come in and take up a ton of innings that could come out and – throw 150 plus innings for them and now Mm -hmm. they got three guys who can do that yeah absolutely i mean solid solid vets you know that you know guys like you know a guy like lance lynn you know he may have a four and a half era for you over the whole season but like you said he's going to eat innings he's going to pitch every fifth day he's going to go five innings at least you know you know what you're getting with them. That's that's ten million well spent right there. Gonna Kyle give Gibson. up a hundred million home runs, but it's fine. Yeah, he'll he'll lead the league in home yeah. runs given up uh, mm-hmm. again, maybe. Um, but you know, like like we we're talking about, you know what you're getting out of them. And same with Kyle Gibson, and then Sonny Gray, who's just been on a tear. Where it's cool to see because you know a couple years ago in his Yankee stint, it was like, oh, is this not the guy anymore? You know, like is something is you know just one of those classic tales of a pitcher where they just lose it and never get it back so it was good to see him sign something like that and yeah, yeah. the cardinals are gonna have a solid rotation with with some some nice vets in that clubhouse and i think the cardinals is the perfect place for Sonny gray right you talked about the pressures in new york but he gets mm-hmm. to go to a bigger market doesn't mm-hmm. have the same spotlight on him and if the cardinals go and get like a yamamoto or somebody else who can kind of be the top of that rotation it's not all on the back of Sonny gray so yep. it takes that pressure off of him as well. And you're in St. Louis. You're not going to get the same press and the same media that you're going to get in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever have to deal with the New York media? I'm sure you did a couple times. But I mean, 
I was never that big of a name, so <laughs> the media didn't really bother with me too much. Um, it was mostly I'd have to deal with the uh, the New York Mets uh, fans on Twitter. They yeah. were uh, they were ruthless. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing some of your tweets back at them too. Yeah, that cool. was that was all I could do. You know, yeah. I mean, it was more fun for me to interact with them that way than to just kind of sit there and just read all that stuff and be like, no, shut up, man. You're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I had to have some banter. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's awesome for a guy like Sonny Gray, three years, $75 million, really good contract for him, especially I think he's aged like 33, something like Mm -hmm. that in thirties. So I, and it's like over the last three seasons, he's had a 2.90 ERA. He's pitched like 200 plus innings every single year. And everybody's like Cardinals fans. I see them complaining on Twitter about the sign. I was like, I would love for the Royals yeah, to sign. I don't, I, I don't know why they would be complaining. It's I feel like the the Cardinals are going about it the perfect way. You yeah, know? they had. I think they got soured by the the Gibson and Lynn signing. So they're like, oh, old arms that are. But it's I don't know. Debt, you know, yeah. It's, you're just you're, yeah. You're not signing Shohei Otani, but you're just. I don't know. You're just getting guys. Sorry, my dog is just going nuts. <laughs> but you're getting guys that are going to help you win ball games. That's, yeah. that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that's the the biggest thing is like, yeah, you want to have that big name guys, but they have that on the offensive side of the Arenado mm-hmm. and Goldschmidt, and you just need to plug and play the pieces that are going to help you win a championship. Like you look at the Angels, they've had Trout and Otani for years, and they never plugged in the right pieces that they needed in order to win. And so you have two of the best players in baseball that we've ever seen in our generation, and yeah. you're not winning baseball games. You're, you're preaching to the choir. You're an yeah. Angels fan since I was a kid. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm very well. You got Anthony Rendon still, so I guess oh, that's yeah, it. he's the man. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess the last topic I want to talk about we're kind of on the subject of the Cardinals. The you mentioned this before we started, but. San Diego Padres hiring Mike Schilt. We focus on the human side. I think Mike Schilt is a perfect example of like a type of manager who really cares about the human beings and the players. You saw that in St. Louis. I think that's something that maybe the Padres clubhouse also needs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even his last year in St. Louis before he got fired, he took the Cardinals to the playoffs. I think yeah. they, I think they got that second wild card spot because they won like 17 games in a row or something down the stretch. Um so, I mean, he seems like a guy that, that's going to come in there and, and, you know, just knows how to run a clubhouse. I mean, especially like we talked about St. Louis market. It's not small. It's a big market. No. You know, yeah. they want to win games. People, it, there is pressure there. Um, and then that pressure is kind of there in San Diego now, too, especially with, you know, all the names that they got. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how he handles that clubhouse. Um Bob Melvin struggled with it, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's and that's another guy who's always been kind of a player's manager and everybody loves to play with. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily that he struggled with it, but the personalities in the clubhouse just didn't seem to to be clicking. Yeah. And you could see the Padres move Juan Soto. Just it seems like it's more likely. Ken Rosenthal, I think, stated today in an interview, he's like, it's not a matter of when or if he's going to get traded. It's a matter of when. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes and see how they shake things up there. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. I think you, yeah. you got to, especially him being a free agent, free agent after this year. Yeah, the Padres have spent so much money. I don't know how much cap room they have left. Yeah. They're they, just handing out deals last offseason. Yes, they really were. And it was because I live in San Diego now. It was exciting. And then the season just did not pan out too hot. 
It's just wild amount of money they were throwing around though last offseason. That mm-hmm. like Cronenworth was getting like twenty, almost twenty million dollars a year. Yeah, no, he nuts. got a, he got a long he got a pretty long term contract. He's doing all right for himself. Yeah, they just locked everybody up and they're like, but let's see what happens. Yeah, now they got to figure out the pitching side, the bullpen, and especially. Yeah, Hater's gone now too. Yeah, yeah, they'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah. Um. So the last thing we want to touch on a little bit is we got an awesome interview uh, upcoming here for you all with Lenny DiNardo. As we said, he was a left-handed pitcher with the Boston Red Sox for a while. Um, I think debuted in 2004 when they went to the World Series. Wasn't on the World Series team because of injuries and things like that. Um, but now I was an analyst with Nesson. You can tell just by talking with him that he's an analyst at Nesson. Just really, yeah. really well-spoken, knows so much about the game, has so many cool stories. And I think you're all really going to love that interview. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Like you said, he is yeah. he is smooth on the camera. Yeah. But we did have uh, some similarities between you two. One was uh, <laughs> you mentioned the first hit that you ever had was off. Two, a guy had two no-hitters. His first hit, I think an only hit, or maybe he had a couple more, but one of his yeah, only his hits or first one, hit yeah. was off a guy who had a perfect game. Yeah. Um, so we want to break down your first at bat. Uh, I was trying to find clips of Lenny's, but it was too old. I don't think there's any footage out there of him actually having the, the at-bat. see if I can get this on here. Three big league innings. There we go. Oh, here we go. So we, we got to go pitch by pitch here. Okay, yeah. It was it was my second at-bat of the game. I, I grounded out to the pitcher my first at-bat. Uh, Love it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean – I, I swung it pretty well. I think I hit like 200, like 220 or something in double A. And then I was swinging it okay <laughs> in triple A. So I was really hoping that I could somehow uh, uh, get a hit at the big league level. I mean, that's obviously the goal, but yeah. it was a long shot going into it. All right, let's yeah, see this I, first one here. So you got, what, 90 down, down and yeah, in? Just a good eye right there, you know, just a big yeah. league take. <laughs> What's going through I your head that, at that first pitch? Oh, I'm just – I'm hoping – see, I hated inside fastballs, so that's why I had an open stance so that people would think I not to throw me inside, but I just dove super far out over the plate. I'm just looking for something out over the plate right here, especially a heater because I know that he – But it looks he, like a stance right here. That doesn't look like as a pitcher at the plate. That's what oh, I know. That's, 92 in? <laughs> yeah. See, in, I do not like. And I was just, I was, I was geared up heater. I was going to swing no matter what that pitch. There was, yeah. I had made up my mind already. Yeah. Well, I mean, did it feel good at least to follow one off? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't strike out my first at bat either. So I was like, you know, I can, I can at least put the bat on it a little <laughs> bit. Who's the, wait, I guess it was Bailey, right? Because this is only yeah. the fourth inning. So, yeah. So yeah, first two at bats are off off of uh, Homer. Yeah, that was it right there. So ninety two, just, <laughs> just muscled it enough right there. But as you can see, when they show me at first base, I'm already grabbing my thumb because I just got absolutely blown up by that. <laughs> right, there. right there. I'm holding my 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 pitching thumb. It just ballooned up after that, and yeah. uh, I could I didn't make it out of the next inning because I literally could not feel the ball in my hand. But I wasn't gonna tell anybody <laughs> that because I was like, "Oh, it's my no, first no game." Chance. Like, you... Yeah, I'm like, I'm not getting pulled out of here because I got jammed. Uh, yeah. But then they got kind of mad at me that I didn't say anything because I did end up giving <laughs> up like three runs that next inning. Yeah, like, well, oops. What was that? So that was your what game was that? The first one you pitched or the second? Yeah, that was my first debut. One. That's right. Mm-hmm. 
Did you have more yeah. at bats after that? I had I had one more uh, in Atlanta, like uh, about a month or so later. It was against okay. Brandon Brandon McCarthy. Um, <laughs> And I ended up, guy. Yeah, I know. And I ended up giving up a hit to him. So it came back around to me. Did you strike out against him or did you make No, I grounded out to the pitcher again. So I'm one for three with a single and two ground outs to the pitcher. Nice. You only I got just, those low 90s guys, though. You needed to get one, like a Chapman abs- at bat. Absolutely not. If, <laughs> if I had to face Chapman or something like that, I'd, I'd be in the box like uh, Henry Roan Gardner, just like in the very back. Left corner, on left, just, just buzz. Like, get me out of here. 104 buyers. Especially if they like ask me to bunt or something. No. Like no that's chance. the thing that I don't get. It's like they want pitchers, they wanted pitchers to hit and then have them bunt in this day and age, and everybody's throwing 95 plus. Just no chance. Zero chance. Yeah, I hated having to bunt in at bats because it was just like I mean, I was just scared. It's that it's that simple. I was scared to to get my face behind the barrel and try to bunt the ball. Yeah, the fastest guy facing like an adult wood bat league was throwing like 85 and I got sawed off and it hurt. I can't even <laughs> imagine like 95 plus just coming in on your hands. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel good at all. That's why like whenever I was hitting, I would just try and first three pitches. I don't want to get to two strikes. I don't want any of that stuff. I'm like, throw me heaters. I'll either get a hit or we'll get out of there real quick. I'll help. We'll help each other out. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you can do at that point. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like an it's like an un, unwritten rule between <laughs> pitchers, especially in the minors. Unless this yeah. guy just hits bombs, because there was a couple of those where I was like, I'm not going to throw this guy a fastball because he can actually swing it. Yeah. So now that you had a major league at bat, do you would you support letting pitchers hit again, or do you believe that we should just keep the DH only? Got to ask that question. I mean, I liked hitting. But it's also cool to say I got to hit in the big leagues as a pitcher, yeah. and now they don't even let them hit anymore, other than Shohei, obviously. So I'm cool with the DH because then I always have that little stat in my back pocket. Yeah, we won't get the uh, Bartolo Colon. Yeah, no Bartolo moments. homers. That guy no watching Mad Bum hit bombs either. No, yeah, he would. He took Kershaw deep twice in one game one yeah. time. That was nuts. <laughs> yeah, the outliers like Jacob Degrom could swing it. Syndergaard could swing it. Taking like BP with those guys in like spring training, it was impressive. Even Bartolo took an impressive batting practice. Yeah, he, he hit bombs. I was gonna say Degrom played shortstop in college, right? He was yep. just a, he didn't even pitch. He was at Florida yep. with a Gulf Coast, or no? He yeah, he played at uh, Stetson. That's right. He was playing yeah. Sale. He took Sale deep at, he when took he was sale at Florida deep Gulf when he was Coast. A, yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, he was he was a good hitter. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Now that we've broken down your at bat. We know that Lenny Donato had his only hit uh, against Matt Cain for um, his at-bat. So we're going to turn it over to that interview for you all with Lenny Donato. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right. All righty. We have another incredible guest here on Behind the Scenes by Just Baseball Media. Lenny Donato, an analyst with Nesson, now a realtor, I think, in Rhode Island, uh, pitched with the Boston Red Sox, Oakland Athletics, uh, Kansas City Royals. Uh, it was a Rule 5 selection in the 2003 by the Red Sox and finally made his major league debut. But, Lenny, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I was just uh, getting my kids in bed prior to uh, coming to join you. So this is a welcome relief. I've got four of them. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot easier than that. Trust me. Yeah, we'll probably get into that and, like, the transition to life and things like that later on. But the first question I always ask, just because – 
Uh, we want the opportunity to fans to really get to know you and hear your story. So I know Red Sox Nation probably knows you fairly well just based on your time with the Red Sox and Nesson. But just for everybody outside of Red Sox Nation who doesn't know you, uh, just give a little bit of background on yourself. Yeah, so I, I grew up in north central Florida, just, just north of Gainesville, Florida, pretty rural area, small town. Uh, Santa Fe High School, I was uh, a graduate in 98. Uh, I was actually taken by the Red Sox in the 10th round that year, and I kind of looked at myself, uh, and I, I knew I could get stronger emotionally, mentally, physically. I was about 6'4", 180 pounds at the time, and mom was still doing my laundry. So I, I had a lot of growing up to do. So I ended up going to Stetson University for three years. Uh, if you've never heard of Stetson, it's near Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, Jacob deGrom, Corey Kluber, Logan Gilbert yeah. currently pitching. Those are all Stetson guys long after I left. Uh, I'm 44 now. And I was there from 99 to 01. Uh, and the gamble paid off. I ended up being a third rounder by the New York Mets. Uh, spent three seasons in the minor leagues with the Mets going from Brooklyn and, and low short season A ball all the way up to uh, in 2003. I was splitting time between high A and double A, St. Lucie and Binghamton. And uh, after that season, I had a really good year that year. And after the season, the Mets uh, decided to leave me off of the 40 man roster, which allowed me to be open for the Rule 5 draft. Uh, and in that draft, the Red Sox took me. Uh, I had to make the club. I had to make the big league club out of spring training. If not, they would send me back to the Mets and it'd be back yeah. to uh, probably back to Binghamton, I'm guessing. Um, so, yeah, I, I ended up making the club out of spring training. I'll never forget Terry Francona at the end of camp uh, pulled me aside in the middle of pitchers fielding practice and said, hey, kid, you made the club. Congratulations. He didn't wait to bring me to the office, told me right on the field. That's awesome. And uh, that was one of the most amazing feelings you could possibly ever get. Uh, just shy of actually getting my, my feet wet in a big league uniform pitching in Yankee Stadium, which is where I made my debut uh, in 2004, April 23rd. I've got the scorecard over here. You probably can't <laughs> see it, but it's hanging on the wall. Very proud of, of that outing. It was the ninth inning and a blowout. Tito put me in a situation <laughs> where I couldn't do too much damage. We were up by, I'm guessing, eight or nine, if I recall. And I faced, uh, let's see, Gary Sheffield, Hideki Matsui, and Bernie Williams in a row. Ground ball to third, wild. strike out, ground ball to third, and the rest is history, right? Not bad. That's yeah. a, that's incredible. I mean, it, there, I have so many things I want to touch on because your journey is just – you've been so many different places. You played in Taiwan. You played in the World Baseball Classic. I guess the first question that I have is you talked about choosing Stetson over uh, the Red Sox that first time. What was – you talked a little bit about what into that decision, but for you, um, what made you decide to go to Stetson and what was your experience like there? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a story that, that still kind of gets me to this day because I grew up just, like I said, just North of Gainesville, Florida, and I didn't have a big league club to go watch when growing up. We had Atlanta six hours away. There wasn't a, you know, there really wasn't a, a, a you know, in Tampa, we had Miami really far from me. So, we grow up when I was eight, nine, ten years old, going to see University of Florida Gators play. I felt mm. like they were big leaguers. I used to get their autographs on the program every season, and I kind of wanted to go to Florida uh, as a senior in high school. And I was, I was a tenth rounder that year, so you know, was 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 okay. I thought, I thought, right? But then <laughs> something knocked me down a peg. You know, I had an official visit. Andy Lopez was the coach, and. Uh, Two weeks, I think, before the visit, he called me up and said, listen, we just signed a lefty from Daytona Beach. We don't need you to take that visit anymore. Just, uh, I'm sorry, but yeah, this is this, this is how it goes. 
And uh, at the time, it was devastating. It was yeah. one of those things where this just the rug was pulled right out from underneath me. And uh, uh, I look at it now as a blessing because sometimes you need a little kick in the rear end to let you know that maybe you're not as good as you think. Maybe you need to work a little harder and, and get that fire in your belly to kind of just take you to the next level. And uh, for me, there's, there was different steps along the way. And that was a was a pivotal, pivotal moment for me that that kind of told me if you're going to be good at something, you've got to almost be obsessive about it. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to think about it before you go to sleep at night on, on your pillow. And when you wake up, you got to be thinking about it again. Right. If you don't have that drive, if you don't have that fire, find something else, find something you are passionate about because you're not going to be the best that, that you're capable of being. And that that kind of kicked my rear end. And uh I'm thankful to Stetson University because it, it couldn't have been a better situation for me. Uh, Pete Dunn was the coach there from 1980 until a few years ago. He was there for a long time. Great coach. Division one has, you know, just just a great coaching record there. He told me on my recruiting trip there, he's like, listen, we're not going to guarantee you a starting position, but we're going to give you the opportunity to go out there and earn it. And uh, I always appreciated that. And he absolutely did. And uh I took the opportunity my freshman year. I was starting every Friday night for three years. And uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me to go out there and, and, and showcase my skills at a school where I might have, you know, I might have gotten lost at a Florida or a bigger school where there's a lot of first, second, third round picks out of high school. And I, I, I wasn't necessarily there at yeah. that moment. Uh, like I said, emotionally, mentally, and obviously physically too. Yeah. Uh, PJ, I'll turn it over if you got a question. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on what you're saying about sets. And I felt the same way. I went to a small school, University of San Diego, where, you know, I was like, maybe I should go to a bigger school. The small school fit perfectly with exactly what you were saying. You know, you might, felt like you might get lost and stuff like that. Um, but what I wanted to ask about is, you know, we, we already talked about you being a rule five draft pick. When the Mets left you off that 40 man, was it kind of, were you expecting to be added? Was it kind of like a surprise that they didn't add you? How did you, you know, take it in the moment? Obviously it worked out, you know, picked up by the Red Sox next year in the big leagues all year. Um, I just kind of want to see how you dealt with that, uh, you know, sort of adversity. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't have adversity, then, I mean, there's nothing to drive you and it's the same, mm -hmm. it's a similar uh, a thought process in my head when Florida turned me down or I didn't make the all-star team at eight years old. And now I, here I am the New York Mets after a great season. It was a really good season. We won the championship in St. Lucie. And obviously I was in double A for, for a little bit as well. And uh, I had a great year. I thought I was hoping to be picked up just to kind of show a little faith from the organization that they appreciated me going out there, getting the work in and putting the, the stats on the back of my baseball card up. And uh, they, they left me off. And it was uh, at that at that time, there's really nothing else I could have done but sit and wait. You know, I could work mm -hmm. hard in the offseason, but that's not going to make uh, the Red Sox or any other team pick me up because the chips were out. Right. Yeah. So I was fortunate that the Red Sox saw something that previous season where I really dealt and, and, and said, OK, this kid can obviously help us in the big leagues. And uh, and uh, I, I just I was never the guy that threw the hardest. I was never the guy that had all the frills. I was, I was the hardest thrower, maybe my 11-year-old team, 10, 11 years <laughs> old. That's the last time I was I had the best arm on my team, you know? And and in high school, I, I had to make the ball move. I had to hit my spots. I had to intimidate in different ways other than the miles per hour and the radar gun. 
And uh, same with college. You know, I had to work on another pitch, the cut fastball, the cut fastball off of my changeup, and 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 throwing 88, 89 back then was was something. Right now, it's like good luck. <laughs> the game's changed a little bit, but I could get away with it back then. I got plenty of outs, uh, and uh, yeah, I I took it as well as, as as I could have, not being taken. Right, I was about to cry in my in my cereal. I just kind of <laughs> sat and waited, and it didn't take long. I think it was December where I got the call from the Red Sox that, that they that they took me. And then uh, at the time, you're like, great, they took me. And then you're, the second thought is, wait, I've got to make the big league club. <laughs> i got to make the Boston Red Sox. And no after, option. Everybody knows the 2003 season, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ortiz, Wakefield. Uh, that was a Aaron veteran Bloom, team. Fly, they were this close to making it to the World Series. And now i got to go out and make that club where there's all these veterans. And uh, so, again, you can either you got two two routes, right? You can be scared or you can go out there and, and, and kind of say, you know what? They saw something in, in me. Why can't I see the same thing and go out there and just deal like like, you know, you belong. Yeah, I love that mindset, uh, just having that mentality of going out there and like being confident with all your stuff. Um, and you got to go back to the team that originally drafted you, which is kind of cool, too. Um, and you were playing for a Hall of Fame manager in Terry Francona. I have to ask a question. Like, do you have some one of your favorite Tito moments? I know he's just announced his retirement recently, but I just got to see if you got a favorite story. He was great. He was great. Tito, any player that talks about Tito always says he's a player's manager, and it's yeah. absolutely correct. His door was always open. He was always playing cribbage. He was always walking around the clubhouse. He believed in the eye test more than anybody, ever, any manager that I've ever known. He would walk around the clubhouse every day, kind of look in the eye. How you feeling, kid? Right. You know, and and be honest with him. I'm not feeling great today or I'm feeling great. You know, Skip. And uh, he, he always kind of had the conversations with the players. And and uh, I remember as a rookie, uh, I was wearing like this, like almost basketball jumpsuit on the road. My, it was the first like the first uh, away trip after spring training. I really didn't know what I was doing. And I was, and you're supposed to wear a sport coat back then. Now you can kind of wear whatever. But I had this like <laughs> onesie, not onesie, but it was like this. I don't know. It was a bad, like a bad, think about a basketball jumpsuit, but I had the thing on. He called into the office and I think he was kind of half joking, but he played the part. He wore me out. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what are you doing, kid? This is the big leagues, uh-huh. right? You can't be wearing this stuff on the road. So <laughs> he let me have it. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I always, uh, always appreciated him as a manager and, 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 and a friend. And uh, I'm glad that he had the career that he's had after the Red Sox. And uh, I'm glad to see him, uh, you know, very, very successful and happy retirement to him. Yeah. And I was thinking too, you, you joined that 2004 team, right? In your rookie year. Um, I know you had some injury issues, so didn't weren't on the playoff roster, but what was it like being around those guys, right? You're making your, you're the young guy in the clubhouse making your debut and you're getting the opportunity to just learn from these guys. What was that experience like? Yeah, so I, I learned pretty pretty quickly that I had to keep my eyes open, my ears open, my mouth shut, and just kind of <laughs> take everything in, especially yeah. a lot of veterans in that clubhouse and a lot of old school guys. And the old school guys that came up in the late 80s, early 90s when they were rookies, they got it handed to them, right? There was just a, a clubhouse mentality where if you – you said too much if you act like you're enjoying yourself too much in a clubhouse and a big league clubhouse will set you straight you can't be sitting on the couch (laughs) until you earn it in front of the tv with the remote in your hand and uh there was a lot of going to get beer for the for the veterans 
there was uh, me and Euclid were the two rookies that year, and they dressed us up as Hooters waitresses from Toronto to Tampa. <laughs> like we were in a, <laughs> they used to haze us. I mean, they don't. I don't think they do that anymore. But we were in Toronto, a one o'clock game, and we got into the clubhouse after the game. Our clothes are gone. Two Hooters outfits are hanging in our lockers. So we had to wear those on the airplane or first in the in the airport because it's international through the airport <laughs> on the plane to Tampa. We didn't get our clothes till the next day. But they told us if you act like you hate it too much or if you act like you love it too much, you're probably going to do it again. Yeah. I only had to do it once. So I, I think I did it right. Perfect. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of learning. There's a lot of learning from from these veterans, guys like Keith Falk and Mike Timlin. Um, Alan Embry, those guys in the bullpen helped me out a lot, you know, not just how to act in the clubhouse, but when you're in the bullpen, the role that I was in was, it was a long guy. I had to clean up if the mess that if a starter got knocked out in the first or second inning, I had to go eat innings for the bullpen, kind of save the day. And, uh, so they wouldn't get depleted. Uh, one, one story, uh, well, I was sitting on the, on the, on the bench and there was a couple walks and a base hit. We had maybe the bases loaded. And uh, Mike Timlin looks down at me, this is first, second inning. I can't remember who's starting. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, did I forget something? I'm looking around. Like, where's the where's the chip or the, the candy bag or whatever? He's like, no, listen, you're probably who they're going to call. So you need to judge the situation. You need to realize what your role is. If they call and you're not already up stretching and moving around, you're not doing it right. So you have to judge the situation and say, okay, I'm probably going to be the guy in the first or second inning if the starter uh, messes up and, 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 and gets knocked out. Little things like that that you just don't think of. You got to be happy to be there, but you can't be a spectator, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. you have to figure out. You, you get a job to do relatively quickly. And uh, guys like that, Embry, Falk, Kemlin, those guys were, were really great with me. Very patient, kind of showed me the ropes throughout the year. And uh, yeah, through 22 games out of the bullpen that year, uh, they weren't about to put me on the playoff roster, even if I was healthy. You know what I mean? There, there was a lot of guys that had a lot of dirt in their spikes, so to speak, which is a Tim Wakefield quote. He used to say that all the time. Rest in peace. He's like, yeah. listen, you need to get some more dirt in your spikes if you're gonna if you're, you're gonna do this or that. And uh, yeah, so it, it was a great experience for me, to say the least. <clears throat> and then you got a World Series ring that first year too. Can't be yeah, too yeah. Like a that. 2004 World Series ring. I mean, I got to pinch myself every day. I bring it around anytime I can. People ask me, "Where do you? When do you wear that?" And I was like, "Only to the car wash, the supermarket, <laughs> you know, just places like that." But that's got to be one of the most valuable often, ones too, right? And, and I've got oh, yeah. a 2018 ring as well. They gave me oh, one cool. for broadcasting as well. So I've got an, a two, an 04 and an 18, and I've got four kids. So you do the math. I need to stick around <laughs> for another couple of World Series. So yeah, I'm not fighting over this at some point <laughs> i love it uh oh, PJ, go um ahead. yeah uh i just kind of wanted to talk so last season pitch in the majors was 09 right and then two more seasons in the minors after that um and then taiwan in 2012. can you talk a little bit how you got there what was the uh you know the route to that was it quick was that something you were trying to do or did it just kind of come into your lap and you jumped at the opportunity yeah, my last season in the big leagues, like you said, was 2009. I was with the Kansas City Royals. Uh, the next year, I signed back with the Oakland A's, and I was trying to make the club out of spring training, but I started to have some elbow fatigue. Early in that year, I, I recognized that I had a bone spur in the chip. It was a chip floating around my elbow. See, I was 30 at the time, so I ended up having that taken out. 
uh, I think I was playing catch in three weeks, you know, no big deal, but it's, uh, this is the time when they signed Gio Gonzalez, uh, I think Greg Smith, they had Dana Eveland at the time, said so these young crop of what Oakland does, right? They mm -hmm. bring in these young mm -hmm. crop of players that have been around for a year or two that have potential. It's what they did with me. You know, I had a couple years yeah. under my belt. They brought me in 2007 was my best year statistics wise. And the Oakland days gave me that opportunity, but now it was the next crop a few years later. And, uh, with the spur and the chip taken out and I, I was rehabbing that the opportunity kind of dried up for me, you know, cause they've mm -hmm. got this young crop and I was in Sacramento. I rehabbed there, finished the season. Uh, let's see, 2011, I ended up signing back with the Red Sox. I was there for spring training. I was the last cut. I was one of the last guys cut in the spring training. So what do you do if you're cut? You go to the Atlantic league. Yeah. You go to the Atlantic league and I played for the long Island ducks. Uh, and I got picked up a month later by the Oakland days again, right? Never burn bridges, kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you never know where you're going to go. Yeah, I went to Sacramento, had a good year. But again, the opportunity wasn't there for me to get called up to the big leagues. I was always uh, trying to climb back into the big leagues. And a lot of it is, isn't what you're doing. It's what's ahead of you, you know, if, if the opportunity's there. And it just wasn't. So uh, in 2012, after that season, I said, you know what, I'm going to go to Taiwan. They offered me a contract there. And at this point I was 32, you know, the money was, was, was enticing. So I went there for one season played. And then I said, okay, after that season, let me try once more to make it back to the big league. So I signed uh, again for the Atlantic league. I played for the Lancaster Barnstormers, uh, Butch Hobson, former third baseman of the Red Sox was my manager. And, uh, uh, I ended up no hitting the Long Island Ducks, my former team for a month. I no hit those guys. <laughs> and I was like, okay, here come the phone calls. It was crickets, crickets. Oh. Nobody called. I was 33, healthy left-handed pitcher, doing no hitter. Nobody called. So that told me, listen, I should probably think about doing something else. Mm -hmm. So after that season, I ended up retiring because, you know, the Atlantic League you're making back then was less than $1,000 a month. I had my daughter at the time. I was married. So I, I felt like I had to grow up a little bit, and maybe kind of think about doing something different at that point. Yeah. I, I coach a 16U team. We actually just had a tournament in the Lancaster Barnstormers Stadium. Was that, that stadium's pretty new. Was that around when you were there? I'm trying to the, think. Of... The stadium? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 2013 was the year. It's the same. Um, yeah. Same stadium. I was actually there in Lidditz, which is right next door to Lancaster for a wedding. We drove by the stadium. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's yeah, it looks it's looks nice pretty for similar. ballpark. Yeah, it's nice. It's yeah. nice. Uh, nice town. Lit. It's I mean, there's a it's it's like Amish country. Yeah. So I would yeah. I would get stuck behind horse and buggies, and it was a really cool town. Just uh, uh, just a fantastic experience uh, being there during that season. Yeah, I live about two hours from there, so we had a okay. we had a tournament out that way. Nice. Uh, not too long yeah. ago. I enjoyed my time there. We the first time I ever stayed with the host family. And yeah. I went to the wedding. The kid was 16. I just went to his wedding this year. <laughs> I stayed in contact with him That's and his awesome. mom, Stu and Beth. Hello, if you listen. And uh, great <laughs> people. I'll, I'll always look back. That's one of my fondest seasons I've ever played. That that's amazing, and it's cool to see. Like you never let those moments, right, uh, of getting DFA'd or getting released, to to really set you back. You still kept going for it. You kept going to the independent ball. You gave it everything you got, and I think that's one thing you probably can hang your hat on. Right at the end of the day, is that you're like, no, I took every step that I could to keep playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I tell the kids that I teach, I teach pitching uh, now, and I tell them that I, I squeezed every drop of juice yeah. out of the lemon. 
you know, because like I told you, I was never the hardest thrower. I had to adapt. I had to make it, make the ball move and change speeds and do whatever I could to get outs. And uh, if you can get outs, they'll look past the radar gun sometimes. If you can be consistent with your stats and just show people that, you know, they're not getting hard contact off you. You can get keep the ball on the ground and get your strikeouts and not walk too many people. Someone will give you an opportunity. It's hard these days, though, if you yeah. don't throw hard to get your foot in the door. Uh, I'm glad I was... 25 years ago uh just coming up then because yeah. now it'd be it'd be a little bit more difficult for me yeah pj didn't you say you topped out at 89 in the the majors <laughs> yeah the hardest pitch i ever threw in the big leagues is 89 so it, it <laughs> yeah, makes I'm, sense I'm right I, I only you. threw about eight eight innings in the big leagues had a nice <laughs> cup of coffee made the big leagues in 2018 uh retired halfway through 2019 i was like i made it but i can see i could see the route it was it wasn't for me sure yeah, yeah, it, it's hard. They say getting to the big leagues is hard, but staying there is even harder. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's absolutely true because there's someone there's someone gunning for your position right behind you, and, uh, and and they're not afraid to give it to that person, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's how it is. I, I guess the question I have, um, when so when you made that decision to retire, what ultimately led? Were, were you like, okay, this is it. I'm just going to hang it up. I've given everything I got. Um, I'm ready to kind of transition to that next stage in life. And um, how did you try? How did you figure out how to make that transition in life? That's something we really focus on the podcast. We have a lot of guys who come on and they're like, when my, my career was over, I was kind of lost on what I was going to do next. So what was, when does that decision to retire and kind of what helped you transition to that next stage in life? Yeah, so that was 2013 with my last season playing, and I didn't watch one pitch in the 2014 season. Mm -hmm. I didn't watch – I would have the remote in my hand, and every time a baseball game was on, I'd scroll right past it. It was very, very yeah. difficult for me. And my wife will tell you that I went through a depression, to be honest. I just yeah. – because I was healthy, right? And I, I knew guys I played with and against were still going out there, doing it, getting opportunities, extending their career, playing this game that we played since we were four or five years old. And uh, it's kind of, I felt like he was kind of taken away a little bit. Yeah. Even though I made the decision, it was my decision. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't watch a pitch in 14. And this is down in Florida. We were living in 2015. We moved up to Rhode Island. Just a uh, growing family at this point. Now we had two kids. And uh, I was looking for a change. I was looking for seasons. I always loved New England. You got the weather. I, uh, Beautiful. You, you get seasons. You know, in Florida, you just don't get that. And, uh, Let's see, 15. And then I started I started doing real estate along with the pitching lessons that I was doing. And I was kind of figuring out what I needed to do next. And that was that was a it was good. I'm not a salesman, I'll be the first to tell you, but it, it was a good supplement. And then 2017, I was doing an event called the Bo Sox Club, which is the Red Sox oldest uh fan supported, team supported club, right? Mm -hmm. And uh Tom Karen, who's one of the hosts, the main host at Nesson was the MC and I was the guest kind of just talk to the audience for five minutes, sign some autographs, easy peasy. Right. And then afterwards he, he basically said, have you ever thought about going on TV? And at that point I never had any inkling that I would ever do any sort of broadcasting, but he said, listen, once you come, come in on Monday, we'll run you through some tests. We'll film a segment and uh, see if you like it, see if they like you, right. They might hate you, but just come in and, <laughs> and, and check it out. So uh, there was a play uh, like a week prior where Dustin Pedroia, the Red Sox, they were in, in, in Texas. And there was a play where Petey ran over behind the first baseman, who was Mitch Moreland at the time, 
And uh, I think it was Moreland. But anyways, he made this incredible grab, turned around, threw it to first base, like one of these deals. <laughs> and uh, incredible play. And that was the segment or the video that I kind of had to talk to in real time mm. without any kind of, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any time to prepare at all. I said, all right, just go out and talk about this. And I did, and they liked it. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. My, my first day in Nesson was Rafael Devers' first day in the big leagues. That's wow. how I, I look at my timeline. So his first day <laughs> in the big leagues is my first day at Nesson. And uh, I love it. I love it. I can't play anymore. I couldn't play at 44. I'm 44 now. I can't play if I wanted to. So that, that little inkling in the back of my head where maybe I can still do this, that's gone. Because I yeah. know that I can't play now. Right? 33 was one thing. But 44, <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Um, so yeah, I can talk baseball. I, I take the same mentality that I had in the clubhouse as far as over preparing. If it's mm -hmm. a six o'clock show for a seven o'clock game, I'm usually there two, two 30. I'll take three mm -hmm. pages of notes every day. I've got uh, a script that I follow that I kind of made up myself that, that gets me to where I want to be confident and where I need to be on camera. And, uh, it's, it's great. It's great. People make fun of me in the office. Cause they're like, why are you, why, why are you here? It's <laughs> You're like, no one yeah. else is here. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't show up a half an hour before the show yeah. starts. I just don't work that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe because I'm a Virgo. I don't know if I believe in that <laughs> stuff, but I just, I have to be prepared. And, and if I'm prepared, I'm more confident. And that's why I work. I love it. Uh, PJ, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, yeah, one thing, or a story that I wanted to bring up. I could have gotten false information. I don't know. So correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and it might start off as a humble brag, but I promise it's, it's going somewhere good. So even though I only got a cup of coffee in the big leagues, I pride myself on the fact that I'm one for three at the plate. And <laughs> I got a hit off a guy with two no-hitters, Homer Bailey. But what I heard, you you have something even better. You got one hit in the big leagues, right? And it's off a guy with a perfect game. Well, I'm only one for five, though. So I'm, a, I'm right at the Mendoza line. <laughs> Still, though. Still, though. A hit off a guy with a perfect game, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, Matt Matt Kane in 2007, mm. he threw me he threw me I guess it was like 95 up and away. I don't know <laughs> if you saw the swing, but it was like like maybe a half swing, like like a check swing, like one of these. And uh I barely barely hit the ball, but it ended up blooping into left field. Barry Bonds was in left field. Omar <laughs> Vizquel is a shortstop. And both of these guys can't get to it. And I get to first base, and I'm like I can't stop giggling. They're making, they're yelling at me. They, they're yelling at me. Cheer up, you know, because yeah. I'm just giggling on the first base. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, Matt Kane. And uh, but I'm I'm proud of that. But I'm almost as proud. And my one of my other at bats, one for five. Tom Glavin got me to ground out the second base, and I almost <laughs> beat it out. I've got the footage on my Instagram. I put it there because I'm extremely proud of it. If you check it out, look at the tape. I'm telling you, if we had instant replay back then, they 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 get it one of these headphone sides, right? I was <laughs> you had you know, a very proud of getting the ball, yeah. getting the bat on the ball against Tom Glavin. Yeah, that's impressive. So, I mean, that's a that's a feat in itself. Do you have that baseball? That you for should five. frame that thing just for. I do have the baseball. Nice. I got the bat. I've got the bat too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be saving those things too, just to to yeah. have that like sheer adrenaline running through your system at that time is gonna be incredible oh yeah he was playing for the mets at the time so it was toward the end of his career and uh i, I struck him out but he also hit a double off me i don't think he kept that ball i doubt <laughs> yeah. he kept that double off of me that day but you should have kept it 
Yeah. <laughs> you should have been like, give me that ball. I want that. <laughs> What's that ball up there? That's a double in Lenny yeah. Nardo back in 2007. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, doubt, I doubt that's a story. <laughs> I'm a Royals fan. I remember watching Kelvin Herrera, who threw out a bullpen. He had his only at bat in the World Series ever, and he just was bailing out every time, barely throwing the bat out there. And he's like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to be a two way player in college because I felt like I was a good, I was an all American first baseman in high school. I felt like I could hit. I took pride in swinging the bat. Yeah. And then my first at bat in college, we're playing University of Miami down and down in Miami. Uh, the Hurricanes, and I think it was a lefty versus a lefty, threw me a curveball, and I poked a line drive the other way, <laughs> right over the shortstop. I was like, ah, oh, this is easy. Yeah, I got and this. it was like 0 for 11, <laughs> 0 for 12 after that with 10 Ks. And I'm like, let me just pitch. I think, I think I'm good. Then <laughs> you get Kane well, throwing 95 up in the zone, and you're like, well. <laughs> I can get to that. Yeah, yeah I, I can handle that. that. My eyes closed, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, so one of the that last questions I always ask, um, just to guys, uh, just because we want this to be a thing where fans can get uh, to enjoy the human side of the game, but also uh, for future athletes and the next generation trying to come up through the same journey that you might be, just what would be your one piece of advice for those guys? Uh, I know there's probably lots, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I touched on it before. But almost, almost take the obsessive approach, mm. right? You have to kind of be obsessed with your goal. If you're not, someone else is, right? Yeah. And and uh, you said you're a Royals fan, right? Yeah. George Brett. George Brett had this saying where if if you're not out there practicing, somebody else is, mm -hmm. right? Make you got to be that guy. It's the whole 10,000 10, hours thing, right? Not enough mm -hmm. people go out there and know what it takes to go out there and get to that elite level. Uh, and it's more than just going to the cage once a week. It's more than just long tossing once a week. It's 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 doing things at home. It's doing things on yeah. the field prior to your practice, after your practice. It's it's putting in so much more work than everybody else does or thinks that they need to do in order to get there. And uh, I had to be that guy because I just was not born gifted with a 95-mile-an-hour arm. So, uh, and I was, I'm very thankful that I had a, a, a dad and mom that were uh, willing to take me to the cage to mm -hmm. help catch my bullpens as a kid all the way up into high school. Uh, I know not everybody's as, as fortunate as me when it comes to parents that, that were able to put in the time and effort and, and help me out. So uh, even if you don't, don't let that stop you. There's always something that you can do to go out there and make yourself better every day. So find something to do to, to reach that level because it's worth it in the end. Yeah. I love that. I think that's an amazing thing to end on. Uh, Lenny, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us on behind the scenes and share your story just so everybody can learn from it. Um, and just get to get to know you, uh, behind the, the performances on the field. So again, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This was fun guys. Yeah. Thank you.